there's a lot of NFT users who haven't been familiar with DeFi. And it's a lot of DeFi users who have not been familiar with NFTs. So we do think that you know, a protocol like Collection could also maybe be the bridge between the different ecosystems and help the user in DeFi to be more aware of what the interesting things in NFT space is and vice versa. And I think it reminds me a little bit of how back in the day, uh, you know, in 2017, 2018 as well, where many of the users who were quite into NFTs were actually the crypto miners and so on as well. So anyway, this is kind of my uh, little historical uh, you know, interest in this uh, particular area. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floor is Rising with me, a special guest today with Kizu and myself as Spencer Young from Gomu and Collection.xyz. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Thank you so much. Um, I'm super excited to be here to talk about uh, NFTs and the, the stuff that we've been working on. So Spencer, tell us, um, how did you get into NFTs? Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, I got to, I, I really got into NFTs, if I recall correctly, sometime in 2017. I think it was in December of 2017 that I heard about this Cats on Blockchain project called uh, CryptoKitties. And uh, that was when I was like, oh, this is super interesting, right? It mind, reminded me of a little bit of the, you know, the Tamakoji or like the Digimons and some of the digital collectibles or pets or whatsoever that you kind of played when you were a kid. And uh, the art was actually really good, right? With uh, a lot of very, really interesting characteristics, traits. And I recall that you were able to do um, kind of this like mating or whatever on chain. And I think it was just a really interesting uh, and very user-friendly way to get involved into uh, the digital collectibles and NFT space. And I think that was really how most people at the time learned about the practicalities and also the usabilities of NFTs. So for myself, uh, thereafter, I reached out to the CryptoKitties and Dapper Labs team and just offered to be helpful uh, if they're looking for any support uh, in the future. And, uh, you know, very fortunately, uh, they actually um, asked myself and also, um, you know, two of my partners at the time to help out in launching, uh, you know, CryptoKitties just more broadly within the Asian and global region. And we worked with them as well as, you know, the Animoca brands, a couple of other folks as well uh, to make some of those campaign ideas happen. So that's really my first uh, foray into NFTs. And of course, since then, I've been just paying a very, very close attention to this space. But due to work, I suppose, at CoinMarketCap, as well as Coinbase, which I was a part of later, uh, just like haven't had as much time to dive deep into NFTs. And uh, in 2021, uh, I guess with the amount of interest everyone had around NFTs, it just really got me thinking about what are the possible things that we could possibly build software in the NFT space. And it's kind of, uh, you know, what we got started with Gomu and, uh, and Collection XYZ after. Uh, okay, that's super interesting. Can you tell me like what, what sort of crypto kitties campaigns were you running back in the day out of interest? Of course. Um, yeah, this is almost like a blast from the past for me. So I think if, we, we, um, if, if I were to recall correctly, uh, what we did was, uh, you know, we worked with many of the uh, influencers 
uh, uh, in the Asian region to essentially, of course, educate first educate them on you know how digital collectibles work, but also you know what are the nuances and also like what are the possibilities. There was a lot of interest in you know customized, I guess, artwork or campaigns, I guess, for the Asian region. And I think and I believe one of the things that we did was to create more of a, uh, I guess, a very Asian looking uh, series of crypto kitties that was like Sing Wang Miao, uh, you know, kind of series. And that was uh, just very, very uniquely tailored to the taste of the Asian market. Um, beyond that, we also looked at many possible partnerships with uh, companies in the region, uh, whether it's gaming studios, whether it's publishers and so on, just to see how we can maybe potentially use some of the traditional distribution strategies to distribute uh, you know, the, uh, the product and also the concept as a game. Uh, obviously, we encountered a lot of challenges uh, and we can definitely deep dive into some of those challenges in the NFT space broadly. And many of them, uh, you know, could be classified as just on-ramp issues, right? Uh, you know, for example, um, you know, if you look at app stores or if you look at the Play stores, many of those uh, are actually sort of controlled by many of the centralized uh, companies, like whether it's Apple or Play Store and so on. I think at the time in 2017, it was just not really clear uh, where digital collectibles and NFTs really sit. And there's experiences other games but if so, then, you know, why are they, you know, getting around the in-app store payments kind of system and so on? So I think that was a bit of pushback on that regard. And it just highlighted, uh, you know, I think at the time, the relative immaturity of the space, whether it's non-custodial wallets, whether it's showing this data and information, um, the the, uh, the meta of the game itself, and also the conceptual understanding of NFTs as a category. But I think it's all really just teething problems. And I'm super glad to see some of those things uh, to have been solved. But then at the same time, many other problems are still unsolved in this space. Spencer, you mentioned that you were um, reaching out, you know, for for uh, to influencers um, in a kind of marketing push in Asia specifically. And, and you kind of basically iterated the kiddies uh, in, a, in a way, you know, that appeals uh, specifically to an Asian audience. Could you maybe say a little bit more about that? And also, you know, since then, um, and in your current work with Gomu, mm -hmm. um, do you have any like you know, high level thoughts on uh, what's unique about the Asian market in, in an NFT space? I think in 2017, 2018, during that time, uh, the Asian market was very focused on a lot of the use cases of crypto and blockchain, um, whether it's mostly for speculation or for staking rewards. And of course, it's a very huge and sizable influence for crypto mining at the time. So many of the uh, influencers that we uh, spoke to and also people who are fairly uh, OG in the space, they tend to come from either uh, a, a more mining background, for example, like the founders of Afterpool, Sparkpool, uh, and some of the, uh, you know, like uh, some of the other products in the space, they tend to, you know, if you trace kind of the, um, the, the source of how they really uh, got into crypto, it was really on a mining space, uh, hardware and so on, they kind of got their foothold. Uh, and as a result, I think what happens is that a lot of the core concepts that the Asian audience were very used to was the mining kind of related concepts, whether it's, uh, you know, distribution of hash power or the ability of using certain things to exchange for rewards, right? So they're very used to that kind of concept. And I think NFTs at the time didn't really offer anything in that regard. And it was really only, I think, uh, you know, in 20, uh, 2019, 2020, when DeFi Spring happened with yield farming, mining, and so on, liquidity mining, and so on, 
then I think the, the crypto miners and so on were really actually more interested. And of course, with proof of stake and so on, it was also very interesting. So I think that's kind of what I observed at least um, doing the, uh, in the market at the time. The other category, I suppose, are like the gamers, right? Um, but the issue, I suppose, with the gamers is that many of them are not as comfortable to commit a significant amount of cash or resources into purchasing these digital collectibles. And I think as the game became really popular overnight, the entry price, I suppose, for purchasing these NFTs to start uh, playing uh, was pretty high. And many of them uh, were maybe slightly disappointed by the lack of a true game experience uh, for the project at the time. I like what you pointed out about the minor background, particularly in Asia. And I wonder, you know, as a subset of that, whether you were looking more at, at China or China, Japan, Korea altogether, or, you know, because I think that that kind of country distinction might also be interesting to look at. Yeah. If there's any, you know, interesting stories that you have on that front that are specific to any of the major East Asian um, audiences, if you could share maybe one or two, maybe for, for fun. For example, if we talk about China, uh, marketing uh, anything in a crypto space to the Chinese market is illegal, right? It's not allowed. And so what happens is that many of the, um, you know, many of the local entrepreneurs and also many of the, uh, the user communities, um, have to find, you know, innovative ways to, I guess, uh, get around some of these issues, right? Sometimes it could be that they actually migrate out of China to a different country, right? Maybe like New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, Korea, Japan, whatsoever. And they basically then access these services, uh, you know, uh, from these regions, right? And maybe that is okay. So I think that's actually a very strong subset of the Chinese market that is actually a China export market, right? Where uh, the sort of the, the, the people and also the users from the Chinese region have exported themselves to a different, uh, you know, locale and are really looking to consume services. But because of kind of how their background, their upbringing, and a lot of these other things have kind of come to play, then what happens is that the way that they think about investments, opportunities, and everything else, it's still kind of grounded in how maybe the China internet kind of industry evolves, right? In general, they have a lot of uh, attention to larger numbers, right? They think about, you know, like user numbers in terms of in the millions or billions, right? They don't think about uh, user numbers in the thousands and hundreds, right? And that usually will be not meaningful traction in that regard. Uh, there's, of course, a lot of focus on top line kind of numbers. And I think if you look at NFT space in general, right, they're definitely not a stranger to purchasing lots of NFTs uh, in huge numbers, like maybe sweeping the floor, like 100 NFTs from the floor, right? And, uh, you know, as compared to just buying one or two. So they definitely are not the more, uh, I mean, if you were to generalize, uh, these Chinese, uh, I guess, users are definitely not users that, um, you know, are only okay only one or two. They want to own, you know, entire spectrum, entire collection, entire group. So I think what you see in East Asia is kind of an interesting sense. Uh, for, for me, it's very interesting because the, the the organic and natural population is actually significant, but there's quite a bit of like fragmentation as well as regulations and a lot of like friction to how users, and that also includes language, right? The local language and native language for each of these countries is so different. So by nature of that, a lot of campaigns, a lot of projects, a lot of things just take a longer time, I suppose, to propagate across in a market. And I think if we talk numbers, for example, maybe it's a lot more simple, right? So instead of talking about, uh, for example, the white paper or the YouTube video or the vision of the company and so on, I guess just talking about the yields 
and the returns and so on might be more straightforward to translate across these different uh, systems. So I don't know. I think this is just my observation of why maybe some of these things are more apparent uh, if you make that comparison against you know the Western markets like the US or Europe, where I think uh, you do not have some of these problems, but at the same time, you have a whole different set of other problems uh, to deal with as well in those markets. Let's uh, jump into, I guess, what you're what you're doing now. Um, I believe um, you guys have uh, NFT AMM collection of XYZ currently in in sort of testnet. Can you first describe, I guess, um, you know, what what is the current landscape um, that collection XYZ sits in? Um, as as we talked about, it's it's an NFT AMM, um, which is a uh, well, I mean, right now, a tiny portion of the overall sort of NFT trading landscape. Maybe, maybe you can just give mm-hmm. our, our listeners a, a, a landscape of what's actually currently happening in the in the sort of the NFT um, trading market, so to speak. One of the older players is called OpenSea, and uh, you might be very familiar with them since you listen to this podcast. That you know they provide one of the best variety and marketplaces for buying and selling NFTs. They charge a two point five percent sort of fee. For that, and they also help creators to honor royalties on their collection. So trading volumes. So whatever you purchase, assuming if I uh, if I spend maybe one ETH on purchasing a particular NFT, out of that, um, basically two point five percent of that will go to OpenSea, and uh, you know maybe five two to five percent of that will go to the creators, depending on what royalty was set by the creators. And this is kind of the economics of the marketplace. I think over the past um, you know, couple of months and you know, quarters, you've seen a lot of other players come up to try to compete in this particular space. But this is um, still limited to having an order book, an individual buy and sell, bid and ask order book for every single NFT that is being bought and sold uh, on these venues. Some of, the, some of the names that you might have heard of are Blur, uh, you know, Jam and Genie, which kind of does aggregation of these different venues. You have Looks Rare, which also did kind of a, a token drop that you know rewards liquidity providers and buyers and sellers, and also XY2, uh, which is also a team that does something similar to that of Looks Rare, and have also added a lot of other borrow and lend kind of like products to that um, to their offerings. Uh, Blur, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we launched really to focus more on the professional user, and many of their launch strategies was very targeted towards people who have the need to buy and sell hundreds and thousands of NFTs. So they really focus on the user experience, the instant buying behaviors, and they just created a pretty good product with a very innovative airdrop mechanism as well that many users are currently capitalizing on. So I think the NFT marketplace category with order books as a, you know, as a space has evolved fairly significantly. And there's a lot of like products that are uh, being offered uh, into that as well, along with aggregators that help to aggregate these orders across the board. There was a, there was a third category, uh, there was a very interesting development that happened last year and of course, uh, you know, over the last two years, which is there are some innovative NFT protocols uh, in the DEX space that have emerged. NFTX was one of the first ones to kind of start out by offering this ability for you to be able to exchange your NFT that you have for an ERC-20 token uh, by depositing it into a vault. And when you do so, what happens is that you can trade this particular ERC-20 token with other uh, tokens like ETH or USDC in a separate sort of liquidity pool on Sushi or one of the other DeFi protocols. 
after you, let's say, buy and sell more of it or whatever, you can actually exchange back this ERC20 token for the NFTs in a vault and you know, receive whatever uh, you want from the vault itself. And by doing so, they created uh, essentially a tokenized uh, NFT kind of market uh, that makes it more fungible. Um, of course, there's some issues with that approach, which I can discuss later. And then the other NFT protocol um, that is a DEX that also launched was Pseudoswap. So the way that Pseudoswap works at a high level is that it allows uh, users and holders of NFTs to create a liquidity pool for each of their, um, you know, basically to tie to the individual account. So how it works is that if I were to deposit NFTs and ETH and create a liquidity pool, anyone would be able to buy and sell NFTs and ETH against my pool. And I just basically have to set it once and it automatically kind of executes uh, the strategy uh, in that sense. And, uh, you know, what happens is that, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can do this for any collection. It's permissionless. And I think one of the things that you also introduced to the market was that they removed royalties entirely. So they did not honor royalties and the uh, pools can only be created at a collection level. So I think there's also some problems with this approach. Um, and uh, maybe let's, let me first talk about the NFTX issues that we have observed from users. When you have these vaults that accept any NFT within a collection mm -hmm. and you know anyone can exchange it back, what happens is that you're not incentivized to put anything that is more rare or more unique into the, into the vault. So what happens is that many of the assets in the vault are really floor NFTs. And essentially, you are treating the, um, the, 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 the least desirable uh, parts of the collection as the floor as what you're really trading and buying and selling, which could work for some people when they're hunting for gems in that kind of basket. But it could also not work for them because they were lo looking for something that's more unique that OpenSea and other marketplaces were able to offer. And then on a pseudo-swap approach, it also has a similar problem where because you are really only focusing on the entire collection, what ends up happening is that really what is put into those pools are the ones that are not as desirable. And the market for the more desirable floor plus NFTs or the more valued ones or certain traits that is just more interesting are just not included. So it creates, I guess, a decent amount of liquidity, but you're really trading off uh, you know, the gas fees that you're paying for almost not as much interest. And what happened was, I guess, OpenSea and Blur and many of the other marketplaces launched this notion of a collection offer where you can make an offer for the entire collection. And that actually helped to reduce the bid and ask spread of the floor price of the NFTs itself. And I think that itself was a very interesting innovation that helped to solve some of the problems that the uh, AMM protocols that were existing in that time uh, to, to uh, you know, differentiate against them in some ways. So I think this is um, this then comes to, I think, how we think about the space. The way that we think about the space is that we want to really create a protocol that drives deeper liquidity for all of the NFTs in the collection, not just the floor. We also want to uh, enable composability with other NFT finance protocols that are coming up. And there were so many of them. Right? There's a lot of them that came up recently, like, um, you know, for example, uh, NFT uh, NFT5, there's like JPEG, there's like uh, NFT Perp, and a couple of other ones that are really interesting. And even like Bandao and even X2Y2 have some of these borrow and lending products. We really want to try to enhance composability of these protocols to allow 
for example, my liquidity positions on collection to also be used in other places. And then last but not least, we also want to make sure that there's adequate incentives and the right incentives for not just liquidity providers, but also for the creators. Um, and I think no, no royalties is definitely not a great thing for the creators as well. Um, and so we also think about the fees side of things as well and you know make some uh, changes over there. So yeah, I think um, that's kind of how I would summarize this space today uh, in this current moment of like marketplace and liquidity. And bear in mind that this is 2020, uh, 2023, is we are only in January and it's going to be so much more exciting things that's happening uh, to the space in the next couple of months or so. As of today, um, sort of order book marketplaces like OpenSea, like Blur, um, still sort of make up the majority of the of the volume. Um, can you talk about how you expect that in terms of the broader categories of NFT sort of DEXs, AMMs, versus sort of I call them peer-to-peer marketplaces like OpenSea? How do you expect that to play out? Um, into the future? The way I think about it is that I do think that the market for NFTs will be large enough to accommodate more than one liquidity venue. And in fact, there will be so many liquidity venues uh, that will cater to various needs of individual collectors, uh, you know, participants, as well as even the chains or networks that are focused on. So I think where, um, I think so in, in, in this particular case, then as we get more sophisticated, it's important to, uh, sophisticated. We're more. It's more important for us to then figure out what are some of the trading use cases each of these different products can power. That is, that something else uh, would not be as differentiated on. So in general, I look for uh, whether it's like in this case, thinking about how NFT AMM DEXs can differentiate against order book marketplaces. I really focus on where this particular use case and protocol can be you know, 3x to 5x better than the order book marketplaces for accomplishing a certain jobs to be done for the user. So I think if you look at um, the most rare uh, NFT, let's say an alien punk or an ape punk for that matter, or maybe a Gordon board ape, it's probably better just because each of these different NFTs have its own provenance, have its own unique history, have its own, you know, very unique traits that you use an individual order book to represent the demand and supply, uh, and it's one person who owns it, right? Uh, really the demand or speculation or price of this particular NFT. And I think this is where you know, OpenSea and Blur and some of these marketplaces will really shine uh, going forward anyway. As, as soon as there's, for example, a, a change in something or like an like a, like a interest to sell whatsoever or a bit, this would then help the, the, the person who holds it to be able to do something with it. There might be even more interesting uh, mechanisms of there that are better than these order book marketplaces like auction mechanisms, blind auctions, open auctions, physical auctions, even online auctions whatsoever, or even maybe some level of tokenization, fractionalization, and so on to make this particular asset even more exciting as a unique financial asset. So I think that's going to be what will happen, I think, to the most rare NFTs. And we've already kind of seen some experiments with that, with like party bid, kind of like coming together to have like a thousand people to bid on an alien, uh, sorry, a zombie crypto punk. That itself is just one good example of how, you know, like this is a very interesting experiment at a super rare NFT kind of category. And then at the floor of the NFT collection, 
I think this is where both the uh, traditional marketplaces like order book marketplaces, as well as AMMs can kind of do something uh, for, for each people. Um, I think the, the AMMs offer a very unique way to just kind of set the strategy and forget about it. And, you know, the strategy works for itself, right? Especially if you look at certain criteria of like maybe collections that have a slightly lower floor price with a very good sort of amount of volume uh, and churn through of like buy and sells. And, you know, if you have the ability to set uh, the sort of the, the liquidity pools up, then what happens is that you actually benefit from it uh, because as more and more people trade against you and if the prices doesn't change too much, you're not eating IL, you're not eating impermanent loss. You are, you're, 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 getting from, uh, you're getting fees, you're getting delta, you're getting a lot of these things from the, from the trades itself, which is great, right? So I think this is where AMMs do, can and, can and will continue to play a part, especially for the slightly smaller collections. Uh, and I think that's where you differentiate. For the medium kind of like range of NFTs within a given collection, and we're just really talking about art and NFT uh, and PFP kind of profile picture type of NFTs in this particular case, right? Where it's still a majority of the interest uh, among regular users. This is where I think the AMM category makes things very interesting. And at the same time, also interesting for the order books. The order book marketplaces helps you to be able to focus on that one NFT that you really want, or that one kind of particular one that you are really interested in, or just a slightly broader range. But AMM is, can really shine by allowing, for example, in collections case, you can create a liquidity pool requesting to buy, let's say, all board apes that have a certain uh, maybe pink fur or blue fur as a trait. And this allows you to express that opinion and specify and add these token IDs of what you really want in. And then you basically set the minimum price that you're willing to buy it at, and then you just kind of leave it there, right? You commit your ETH and then the, the pool sits there. And then what happens is that if a user is looking to sell a blue color, colored board ape, a blue fur board ape, um, he or she will be able to look at the vari a variety of like offers on uh, on, you know, that is placed and be able to sell their uh, NFT into the pool uh, pretty easily against you, right? So that way you'll receive the board aid and then you'll be able to uh, to pay automatically the amount that, uh, that is bought for. And this allows uh, for very, uh, very, very opinionated collectors or people who are not looking to buy something at the floor to be able to essentially set the strategy, forget about it, and then let the strategy work itself in the liquidity pool, which is where I think it's, 3x better than a lot of the other order book marketplaces uh, out there. So you think that uh, it's it's that kind of passive market making aspect that um, you know for certain NFT collections will, will basically be be superior to an to an order book style system, which requires sort of manual intervention to create liquidity for a particular collection. Yeah, I think for anyone who has used any of the order book marketplaces, right, you'll find that even if the best tooling, the best bots, the best kind of strategies, it still takes so much to manage it, right? And you uh, and you really have to kind of be very careful and coordinated, and you often have to just kind of like be very worried about whether or not it's getting accepted or not, right? And I think it's a very unique use case. Uh, you see the same kind of people who are very interested in that to also be the ones to place bid and ask letters on exchanges when they're trading tokens uh, uh, you know, with, uh, with other tokens, right? But then you see the same kind of, uh, you see a different behavior for users who are liquidity providing on Uniswap or who are, buy, uh, who are using dollar cost average strategies to buy crypto. Right? These are people who have limited time, 
have a very strong and clear intent of what they want to do, and they just want to get it executed automatically for them. And I think this is where the AMM category provides a very good uh, sense of. The one thing I would add that uh, you know it's present for both the order book marketplaces and NFT DEXs, and we'll see where this actually lands, is around the topic of incentives. So as you as, as you probably know, uh, you know there is a Blur, for example, is doing an airdrop. Luke's Ray and XY2 have done similar kind of token issuance in some ways, but OpenSea hasn't done any of that yet, right? And of course, there's some other marketplaces out there that's very popular, not on the Ethereum ecosystem, but on, let's say, Solana, like Magic Eden, that hasn't also, you know, moved down that path at all yet. So token incentives is also one of the interesting ones where uh, for the marketplaces, it's really very similar to that of centralized exchanges like Binance and, uh, you know, of course, FTX back in the day of like offering a token that, you know, rewards users in a community with lower trading fees, uh, you know, like activity and whatnot. For the NFT finance and DEX kind of protocols, there's a more interesting element, which is that you can tap into a lot of the primitives of DeFi incentives uh, in this regard, right? You can maybe help create vault strategies where you can allow people to maybe mint uh, you know, NFTs, uh, you know, for liquid in exchange for liquidity. So as an example uh, for collection, we actually have this uh, vault product called Collection Draw that we will launch on mainnet as well, where what happens is that you can deposit ERC-20 tokens or NFTs into the vault. And when you do that, what you can set is that you can set specific parameters of what kind of liquidity you want to attract. And let's say if I want to attract liquidity of my collection, uh, you know, my, my collection, uh, you know, board apes, what happens is that if I were to put board ape liquidity into the vault, then the reward that I put in can be distributed in proportional amount to the liquidity that was provided. And it can be, of course, ERC-20 tokens, and that will be just fractional based on whatever token amount that you kind of uh, are rewarded. Or it could be, uh, NFTs in whole, and the distribution uh, will be will be will be randomized uh, and 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 drawn based on uh, Chainlink VRF and other random functions that we use to be able to con conduct almost like a like a like an incentive lottery draw mechanism for users for liquidity. And I think we think that this could be a very interesting way for NFT collections to possibly launch derivative collections, like how Azuki Beans can be launched to Azukis. Um, or any of these other things that you know creators want to do. What, what do you mean by that? How would how would the provision of, of liquidity help launch um, sort of new collections? Can you can you go into a bit more detail about that? Of course. Um, so let me kind of give an example of uh, how a collection could possibly do this. So let's say, for example, if I were to launch a collection with one thousand NFTs of varying level rarity levels, perhaps what I can do is I can take um, the NFT ID number one to 900 to be available for users to mint publicly. So they would possibly contribute, let's say 0.1 ETH or whatever to purchase uh, these NFTs. And, uh, and, and basically in that kind of mechanism, I've collected maybe about 90, uh, actually about, about 90 uh, ETH if uh, I'm pricing at 0.1 uh, sort of per NFT, right? And what happens is that I can then take a, a, a 90 ETH and to deposit into the vault uh, a, a portion of that, perhaps 10 ETH. And, uh, or I can, uh, I can maybe put the remainder of the 100 NFTs into the vault as a reward for liquidity. And then what happened was, if I have purchased as a user uh, one of the 900 NFTs, 
what I can do uh, is maybe I can buy one more. So I have two and I can put one of them into the vault, uh, into uh, creating a liquidity pool that I'm willing to sell for and also some ease that I'm willing to buy for. And basically I can help to launch and bootstrap the liquidity for the particular collection. So any user then after maybe they missed out the mint or whatever, if they want to buy NFTs in a collection, they can buy it from my pool for whatever price that I've set it at, they, they think is reasonable. And after they do so, um, of course, the, the pool will increase or decrease uh, in NFTs or ETH depending on what happens, right? And as a user, when I create this liquidity pool, the protocol gives me an ownership token, an LP token that represents my ownership of the pool uh, and that, hey, this is the pool that I can withdraw NFTs from and add to it as well. So then I can deposit this NF, uh, these LP token into the vault to prove that, hey, I have been providing liquidity uh, to, uh, to, 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 to the uh, collection in this regard. And what happens is that, that, that the proportional uh, reward of NFTs, of 100 NFTs that was maybe deposited into the vault, or it could be some portion of the 90 ETH that was raised by the project, can be used to reward me, to incentivize me for providing liquidity. And I think the benefit of this is like manifold, right? One of the things that you will, you will help to do is of course, incentivize people and users after they have minted to not just sit on their assets, but also be able to uh, be able to contribute liquidity and you know throw some liquidity into the market to have a more healthy market. And this helps to create more buyer confidence. It allows more people to buy and sell instantly uh, NFTs in a collection. And of course, receive rewards for doing so. And the rewards doesn't have to be based on whatever is paid to the project for the mint. It could also be maybe a certain percentage of the NFTs, right, in the collection that wasn't even minted. So then, as a liquidity provider who previously maybe only owned two NFTs in a collection, now I might be able to stand a chance to receive more than that, maybe one more NFT, which I can then, of course, throw it back into the liquidity pool uh, to continue increasing my proportion of it. It's almost like, uh, kind of a staking mechanism uh, in a sense. So yeah, that's kind of uh, how I'd explain this uh, particular mechanism. You're saying that it allows essentially NFT projects to to essentially uh, market make their own liquidity using their own assets, with, using their own NFT assets without sort of starting off with a whole bunch of uh, sort of ETH or USDC. Um, and then the tools, uh, you're basically saying that that uh, the tools that uh, Collection X or XYZ has um, mm -hmm. allows that kind of liquidity bootstrapping that I guess is pretty par for the course in DeFi, but, but so far has kind of eluded um, NFT projects. 100%. I think the tools that we provide basically is a set of contracts on Ethereum or which other chain that we are launching on, right? Of course, we launch on Gurdy Testnet first, and there's a Testnet competition that you can try it out on. So what happens is that when we launch this on Ethereum, what happens is that by interacting with the contracts, basically you, you can cut out any other middleman to be able to do the market making for you because the regular user who's the person minting it can now be the market maker using the contract and you can just incentivize uh, and signal to the market that you want this market making behaviors or this uh, liquidity provision behaviors to happen using a protocol. So it really simplifies the uh, the need for additional third party, maybe a professional market maker or so on to be part of the equation. You don't have to. Users can be the market makers themselves uh, versus other users, which is uh, which is the beauty of the the protocol. And uh, I think 
the other part to this is uh, just kind of like you know on the on 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 what you mentioned, uh, you know, like there's a lot of NFT users who haven't been familiar with DeFi, and it's a lot of DeFi users who have not been familiar with NFTs. So we do think that you know a protocol like Collection could also maybe be the bridge between the different ecosystems and help the the user in DeFi to be more aware of what the interesting things in NFT space is and vice versa. And I think it reminds me a little bit of how. Back in the day, uh, you know, in 2017, 2018 as well, where many of the users who were quite into NFTs were actually the crypto miners and so on as well. So anyway, this is kind of my uh, little historical, uh, you know, interest in this uh, particular area. Yeah. As you mentioned, a pseudo swap, right? I, I believe they were kind of the first um, uh, NFT sort of AMM out. Um, can you talk a bit about, I guess, uh, how you see uh, your product versus uh, pseudo swap and and uh, you know how how you see, uh, I guess, the comparison between you guys. I think as a category, the NFT finance protocols, whether it's NFT DEXs like us or PseudoSwap, I think the real challenge that we have as a space is, is to popularize the concept of NFT finance and also the concept of NFT DEXs in general versus the order book marketplaces and provide, of course, in a very interesting alternative, right? So to that point, I think we are both um, innovating uh, very, very, uh, you know, like very significantly. And I do hope that they can also build on the protocol innovations that we have done as well, because we will be open sourcing it in a similar standard to Pseudoswap as well. So in that in, in, in that sense, uh, we have a few areas where uh, it's pretty unique. The first thing is that um, Pseudoswap charges uh, you know, two, uh, a 0.5% protocol fee, and they have a 0% royalty on their protocol. So from a fee perspective, we are actually starting with 0% protocol fees. And even if we increase uh, the fees in the future, you'll be as a carry of whatever the liquidity providers have made by providing liquidity uh, on the protocol. And we also allow liquidity providers to set the royalties that they want to honor. And we think that that will really help to incentivize creators. And anyone who is creating vaults uh, and incentive vaults is also able to set the royalties that they want to uh, they want liquidity providers to do. So in that sense, it creates almost a win-win situation between the projects, the uh, liquidity providers, as well as the users, because the projects win when they collect the royalties. Um, but at the same time, they can incentivize liquidity providers who provide liquidity, and the users get a better and more robust market uh, for themselves. And then the, the other thing is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the way that we think about how you create these pools and how you create this automatic buy and sells is different. We improve upon uh, the SuperSoft way of only thinking on of the collection level to also allow you to specify the specific token IDs that you want to accept or exclude from the pool itself. So let's say for a 10,000 uh, token ID collection of board apes, I might be only interested in accepting a hundred of those NFTs within the collection. And I will be able to specify using a protocol via Merkle proof that this is what I want to. And this is very powerful because it allows me to create all kinds of permutations and combinations. And it reminds me almost of like the analogy I would use is like how you create lists on Pinterest or some of these other like collector board um, kind of like apps, right? So you're able to then create almost like a list or a, um, you know, a collection that you want as compared to what the general collection offers you, which is 10,000 token IDs. Um, and then the third thing is what I mentioned earlier as well about incentive vaults. The incentive vaults really allows just democratization and permissionless create of on-chain uh, reward campaigns for the NFT projects, right? You can easily mint 
uh, you know, more NFTs and you know, distribute it to liquidity providers. You can also use your treasury or you can use a new ERC-20 token to incentivize liquidity providers. All of those things is possible and enabled through the incentive vault that we have, which is collection draw. And you can even use that um, you know, for um, PseudoSwap as well through collection draw. We actually do allow you to do that uh, you know, and we try to make it as compatible as possible. And then uh, I think last but not least, the way that we think about composability is uh, one step forward. So you know, when you create a liquidity pool with collection, you receive an ownership token uh, you know, off the pool itself. And if I were to transfer that ownership token to another wallet or to you, then you or the other wallet that I transferred to will be the one that actually will be able to withdraw from the pool itself and to, of course, do any incentive actions and so on, or even collateralize that right, on some of the NFT finance protocols or Aave or whatsoever. And because these are almost like Uniswap B3 kind of like liquidity pool tokens, which are NFTs, uh, they are also, you know, maybe they can be even NFT pools created by these pools and so on. So it, it just creates this like a second order kind of thinking as well uh, and possibilities. So yeah, I think this is some of the, the high level details. And, you know, and, and from a user experience perspective, I think we all want to make sure that we innovate on the user experience and we want to definitely spend more time on this particular regard as well to make sure we're differentiated and better. Yeah. Well, that's um, that's quite a exhaustive list, uh, Spencer. Thanks for for going in so deep that wide ranging discussion to, and for pointing that out. Um, so we, we've come kind of running running a little short of time. What is your favorite NFT artist? I think my favorite artist, if I would cheat on this question a little bit with two answers, is uh, Tyler Hobbs. I really like uh, the way that he think about the more crypto native way of like an algorithmic way of thinking about things. Specifically, I think what he uh, did uh, a collection recently where you can generate this art yourself, right? And you can mint whatever you generate uh, if you are very satisfied with it. And I've seen a lot of really interesting uh, you know, artworks that have been generated by that, by Curated Fund and so on. So definitely shout out to the team there. Uh, huge, huge fans and supporters of the fund as well. Uh, but yeah, I think the other thing I would just like, maybe as a bonus shout out is, you know, like the, the Yuga Labs uh, team and also Board at Yacht Club uh, sort of community have recently, uh, you know, recently been playing the Dookie Dash game, uh, you know, almost every single day. I think it's probably day nine and there's like over 5 million plays right now on Dookie Dash. And it might actually be one of the most, um, I guess, played Web3 game today. So, you know, just definitely, I think uh, it, you know, it goes to show that, hey, when you have a good community with a carefully and well-designed game and with something that is very interesting, whether it's a skill-based mint or whatsoever, people are going to pay attention. People are going to care. And I definitely want to see more of these kind of experiments going forward in the uh, NFT space happen. Yeah. Uh, Spencer, it's been an awesome uh, pleasure having you. Also good for you to promote uh, our podcast. So those of you interested in Spencer's favorite artist, Tyler Hobbs, can also look at our Tyler Hobbs episode, uh, which is part three of six in our generative artist episode that we that we uploaded about uh, one and a half years ago. Um, but uh, Spencer, thank you very much for coming on the on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you, folks. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor Is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor Is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM 
at Floor is Rising.